Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is, huh? Anybody? Kayla, hey, guess what day it is? Oh, come on, I know you can hear me. Champ, 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 champ. What day is it, champ? <laughs> hey, Cash, guess what the day is? It's game day. Whoa, whoa! Son of Slovenia, cool as hell. He scores the ball and he rebounds well. Don't fight the future. Here comes Luca. Even losses feel like wins. When you're with your good friend Tim, it's 77. Minutes in heaven. Welcome to 77 Minutes, a Dallas Mavericks podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The only Mavericks podcast that would never win six straight games. We don't have even six good episodes in a row. We barely have one. Uh, when we when we do two, you know, that's, that's setting records for us. I'm Tim Cato. I write and talk about the Mavericks. Uh, we've got two people on. It's not the usual co-hosts. It is Austin Gurria, but you do know. He, he, he's, a, he's a rotating fellow. I would say a rotating host. How do you I feel about being rotate. a rotator? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm good at rotating just like the Mavs defense. Does, does your spin, does your chair spin? Do you have one of those like spinny chairs? Oh, or you just take a little, I, I do too. And, and just every once in a while, you know, when I'm zoning out and like losing focus, just take a spin around in that chair and it, you know, it, it helps kind of recenters you or I guess does the opposite of that. But in, in a way, it, it metaphorically recenters you, if you know what I mean. You can't stay stationary all day. Have you bought one of those new chair mats they've been advertising, like hell on, on the TV, where oh. it just says super hard plastic? <laughs> I have not, but that is Mike, uh, Mike Pellucci. That is not Mike Pellucci. I'm, I'm, no. We've got too many mics on this podcast. So God damn. Like, that is Mike Marshall. That is Mike Marshall of Dallas Mavs. Yeah, yeah it's he me. said it, not me. It's he me. said it, not me. My, my sources cannot confirm that, so uh, don't come at me, Mike. No, um, he knows it. It feels it feels right to have a mic on the podcast. You know, you know when when Pelucci's out, we, you know we just we just go to the bin, the barrel of mics, and we pull ram- names at random. And uh, today it came up, uh, Mike Marshall. So it was like ten of us were easily replaceable in the DFW Metroplex. Like you couldn't even tell. The difference if you just swapped somebody in for me right now with the name Mike. Um, but did y'all drop the in, in heaven part off the end of the title of this podcast? Well, first off, if you go to any it. bar in Dallas, you go to any <laughs> deep Ellen bar in Dallas on a Saturday night and you just shout Mike and you're gonna have like five oh, people yeah. looking at you. You so, got like 10 so new friends, wrong. minimum. We're we're one of those fun podcasts that you know ha- kind of has a uh, formal name, if you will. You know, you can find it in the metadata. I think it's still on a lot of our uh, mm. our episode feeds and things like that. But you know, we're known by our nickname. We're I, see, I see the New York Times is changing a lot of stuff already. <laughs> now nah, we've been we've been <laughs> one like thing, one while. thing. If I'm going to buy this company, <laughs> drop in heaven, seventy seven minutes in heaven. Oh uh, yeah, that that came straight from Maggie Haberman. She was like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got one condition. I've got one condition. I will be Tim Cato's boss and make him hell. And it starts with changing the name of his podcast. Ezra got you on a on a uh, a Zoom call like stat. He does. He does. Well, he wanted to know about the Mavericks defense and why they're winning six straight games. Ezra Klein was just very interested in, you know, just all the factors that were growing into it. You know, it, you know, his job is to cover the important news of America and offer opinions about it at the people want to know opinion section and he told me what could be more important 
than the Mavericks winning six straight games, largely because they're playing just incredible defense, which is is not jarring, but it is not uh, how I expected their midseason turnaround to go per se. So let's just let's just start there. You know, we're going to talk about a little bit about the Mavericks. We're going to get into Dirk uh, wrapping up some uh, Dirk thoughts from his jersey retirement in the pod's second half. But Mike, give me give me your defense rundown uh, of why things are working right now. Um, I think it's obviously the players, like the the roster you have in front of you. Um, number one, but number two, I think the thing that is different than it has been over the previous, I'd say, whatever, 25 games is you're not just playing inside of a scheme. You're playing like a step ahead of a scheme where you know, not only do you know where you want to be or where you need to be. So an open shot doesn't get created, you know, I'm here. And in turn, I can also play this passing lane. And I can't remember what game it was. It was probably three or four games ago. Um, it was mid COVID outbreak and, you know, you go into one of these games and it's like, do you beat this team you're supposed to beat, even though three players, three of your starters are on COVID list. And they started jumping in passing lanes. Like I hadn't really seen in the previous 35 games. And I was like, well, what's going on here? Because it, it we didn't have a spectacular defense to start the season. Um, it looked like guys were playing slow to the ball, slow to rotations. Um, they were doing the basics of communicating and staying in front of their guy, which is like, you know, if you go to second grade YMCA, like that's what the coach is going to tell you to do. But it's, it's that third and fourth and fifth layer of, okay, I'm actually in front of my guy. I'm communicating, which has been like the entire thing, right? Just talk, 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 tell people where you are. But then being in that spot and anticipating what the other team is going to try and do to you. It's the, it's the counter scouting, right? So if, if my pieces are here on this chessboard, that's fine. I'm going to attack it this way. Okay, what if the, the bishop on the board actually jumps up and gets in this passing lane? Well, that's different, right? And so it was a huge question of whether or not Jason Kidd and Dudley and, you know, Tyson Chandler, all the new guys, and mainly Kid because he's adopting that Lakers um, mentality of Sean Sean Sweeney important in his Sweeney as for well. sure, he's yeah, yeah. Forgot about coordinator. Um, and adopting that Lakers idea of like we can be an extremely good defensive team, stay in front of our guys, and create turnovers because of our talent. When you look at the Mavs roster, you're like, okay, I don't see a <laughs> LeBron James over there that never gets called for a defensive penalty throughout a game and kind of does whatever he wants. Right. I don't see a, these, I don't see a Rondo. I don't see a, these five guys that were so good with the Lakers, but we've got competent guys up and down the roster and uh, Luca for, you know, as much crap as he gets for the various things of just not being a perfect <laughs> human being at all times, uh, whether it's defensively or, you know, body shape or whatever, he's been passable defensively. Right. And that's all you kind of need if you're going to be a nuclear uh, offensive engine. So all those things, I think everybody has regressed to average and then they're fitting in and playing fast inside the scheme. Like that's something you always hear about in football, right? Like that's what got um, 
Mike Nolan run the hell out of here last year. He's like, I just want to put people in place and, and let them play fast. You're like, well, they're not doing that, bud. Like this just looks unorganized and they don't know what they're doing and they're not, they're not playing downhill. And now, I mean, you see every, it's, it's almost like they've started over the last five games, realizing they can cut off passes to the wing and to the corner with such great ease. If they just play on their toes, as opposed to their heels. And that's kind of what I noticed. I started looking up, you know, as we're up there in the press box and going, okay, this offensive action happened. The ball is supposed to go to the corner now or to the, the opposite wing. Oh, Reggie's turned around and his hands on the ball now, or Dodo's turned around and his hands on the ball now while also guarding a guy. So you're almost guarding like two guys at that point. If you are cutting off the passing lane to another player. So I haven't put my finger exactly. I mean, there's numbers obviously that'll back it up, but within the scheme, that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. Cause that's stuff that stays like numbers can bounce. And we can talk about some of that shooting stuff that probably will bounce again in a month, but it's playing faster inside the scheme and being comfortable within it. It's not like you did something brand new. It's like you're more comfortable playing within this thing and you can play fast now and on your toes, as opposed to first 30 games or first six lineup iterations that we went through weren't playing fast and they were just doing the bare minimum of the defensive scheme. And now it's a, a offensive action happens and I know what the next, you know, puck movement supposed to be. And there's a guy in that lane. That's kind of what I've noticed over the last, at least like six to 10 games. I, I do have numbers, but I think sticking out scheme is the right place. Uh, Austin, when did you buy your beachside bungalow on the scheme is good Island? Because I think that was what late October, you were very early to purchase real estate. Listen, I've been living on it. We're, we're seeing the returns now. We have a full economy here on beach bungalow island <laughs> but i think early on you could see it also in the numbers where they were no i think they were number one number two early on in the season in expected field goal percentage given up and that means your scheme is good that means you're i think the entire season the first time i think i've ever watched a mavericks defense they actually dictate the terms of engagement on defense other teams just don't get to just do what they want to do they're they're going to make you do something and if you do that well like maybe you can beat them but you're not going to be able to beat them by doing the things that you do well and they're gonna make you uncomfortable. And the second thing, and this was actually really evident, I was able to go to the, the, the Warriors game and sit pretty close and, and watch them. They, they are on a string on defense. They don't miss assignments ever. They When they blow an assignment, it's actually kind of glaring now when someone gets an open layup because they don't miss any assignment. They don't they don't miss screens. They don't miscommunicate on screens. Um, and playing a team like the Warriors, who's constantly cutting, moving, uh, doing back screens, they switch. They if someone switch, even if someone messes something up, another guy realizes it and sends someone else in help really quickly. They have a lot of guys who are reading and reacting really quickly on defense, and it helps when guys like Dorian and Maxi have played basketball together for six years and they really trust each other. It also really helps. Dwight Powell's been good on defense this year. That's the first time I think I could ever really say that. Dwight's been good, actively helpful. And so when you have three guys who've been playing together and who are active and who are athletic, it really helps your defense. I think another thing that's kind of helped their defense is that Tim Hardaway Jr. hasn't played quite as much with other bad defenders and they've isolated him basically completely to the bench. Um, and so that's really helped their defense a lot. And then even and now that Luke has come back, I think he's been a little bit better defensively, but for a long time, they weren't playing Tim and they weren't playing Luke. And I think that helped them kind of 
get their defensive identity together and help them play together more on a string because every guy was really just locked in on the defensive end. Even even Brunson for that, and Brunson really, he's small, but he doesn't miss assignments. He's always where he needs to be. And this team is just very, very well coached on the defensive end, and they and they don't miss any items. If you want to score against them, you're going to have to really, really bring it, or you're going to have to bring, be a really high-level player to, to, to get your baskets. Yeah, just making making people earn their buckets is like sounds like it's a yeah. minimum, mm-hmm. but it's it's some some teams just don't do it right. There's like 20 teams in the league that don't do it. They just give you buckets. <laughs> Hardaway to the bench was one thing I was going to mention. I, I think Bullock is not a splashy defender, but his presence has slowly, surely in the background been a pretty decent part of this for the games that he's been starting. They've been, you know, you mentioned like the first 25 games or so. I think the 25-game benchmark is the exact one. The 25th game of the season was in Indiana. Uh, they lost that. It's really the the following game where we started seeing turnaround and players playing better. I I think, uh, you know, in that time frame since December 11th, uh, December 12th is is when they played the following game against Oklahoma City. I think the team's been, you know, just broadly, they've been overall better, noticeably better. Uh, you know, the defense specifically, I think, it has has ticked up since then. They've been fifth in the NBA uh, since that standpoint. I, I do think that they've got some favorable three-point shooting. Um, there's there's a few different shot quality metrics out there, and I am totally open to hear arguments about which one is best or the flaws of various ones. I, I will say that second spectrum doesn't grade them in, like, top 10. You know, they're they're firmly middle middle of the pack. Um, that said, I, I do think that they have done a pretty good job pushing people into less comfortable shots uh, in a in a broad sense. I think that's important. Obviously, defensive schemes are built around where you want teams to take shots and where you don't want them to. They've definitely shored up around the rim. Uh, that's pretty important. They are giving up a decent number of corner threes in that December 12th time span. Uh Teams are shooting 30% on corner threes. You know, that's an area where they're going to hit some more. That's an area where, you know, I, I just don't think this team is going to be top five for the course of the season or even from this point going forward uh, because they don't have those like truly elite, splashy defensive players. Uh, I think that's going to be the thing that holds them back and we're going to see some more shots go in. Um, but but I think broadly, like a lot of what we're seeing is very replicable, uh, very consistent, will continue going on. And I think just the... The, the buy-in uh, that you guys were talking about, the idea that the players are all moving together, that they're believing, that they're really paying attention and zoning into game-by-game uh, game defensive schemes uh, is is pretty pretty effing important and a pretty pretty big part of that. When when we talked about what the you know when on this podcast when I when I've talked about what the change from Jason uh, from Rick Carlisle to Jason Kidd would be. You know, one thing I've speculated or talked about is just that the players like playing together more. I know me and you, Austin, have talked a lot about how they just look like they're having more fun. I, I think it's fair to say, and, and let me get you, you guys' take on this, is that, you know, broadly, when you're feeling more cohesive, cohesive as a team, as a locker room, when you're liking and enjoying playing under a specific coaching staff more than another one, like that's that is one of those trickle down effects that you can get is that everybody's locked in and buying in and you know you're not starting another game with oh here we go again but you know fuck yeah i'm excited for this like that does matter and that is important and if i were to assign like one non-tangible reason or non one thing that can't be purely proven with stats it's that the joy and the 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 enjoyment that the players are getting from uh this this season 
is directly contributing to, you know, just really ironing out some of the sloppiness of, of years past and the cohesiveness that, that you guys have talked about. Yeah, I mean, they play super hard. There's there's no way around it. Like if you if you play as hard as they do, um, as inspired as they do on a night to night, at some point you're going to get some breaks. And at some point, a de- defensive scheme, uh, if it is sound, and we've decided it is sound according to our purchase of the island, um, it's not the entire gonna- island, just a bungalow on it. There's plenty of real estate available. Oh, okay. Um, we do we do own some land, so obviously we get kickbacks. Okay, investment um, property. But that's is what all right. We're talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We invested early. That's all right. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I mean, they—that's one of the things. Like just being at every single game and watching <laughs> um, footage of every single game and baseline footage of every single minute of every single game is—they're playing faster. They play harder than I think even last year. And part of that is guys like I'm. We're talking to Jared Dudley in preseason, and. He basically said his job is to chime in and let Jason Kidd and Nico know what a player would like or what a player, what would make sense to an active player in this situation. Whether it's after a loss, do I want to come in here and watch an hour of film? Um, You know, after whatever the scenario presents itself. What is he feeling at that moment? Like, what would keep the the vibes immaculate at that moment? Um, and obviously, there's way more to it. There's a lot of film, a lot of meetings, there's a lot of stuff like that for, for Dudley. But remember, he said, like, that's basically early on, like, that's the stuff they wanted from him. Whereas I think in the past, you had a coaching staff that was very cemented in their ways. Um, this is how it's going to go you're going to show up. And if we lose, you're showing up for 90 minutes. Um, If you're, if we win, you know, we don't have (laughs) a meeting tomorrow and just that stuff lingers. Right. And then that's, you know, I mean, we can get into the psychological warfare of like (laughs) resentment of somebody after rubbing something in your face and things like that. Um, But it's just way more fun. And everybody, I think just trusts, that they're either going to get a crack at it. Like, I mean, you've seen Josh Green over the last five games, right? That guy might have every excuse to just like check the hell out this season after 35 games and just be like, yeah, all right. I guess I'm not really wanted here. I don't know. But I mean, he's came in and he's been a huge contributor over the last five games. So it's just a better feeling playing faster. Not the same message you've heard for four or five years, even though some of the guys are consistent. Um, and coaches that genuinely care about the minute-to-minute emotional well-being of the players. Yeah, you brought up Josh Green. I, th- I think all of that does add to the other big factor in this turnaround is that there are more role players doing more in sometimes in a game-to-game basis. Like sometimes they, you know, we've seen Josh Green lately become more consistent in the rotation. But then when Sterling Brown jumps in, he's been good of late. And, you know, he might not really play uh, one game. And, and then the next one, he'll lock 20, 22 good minutes. And that type of stuff matters. I, I think that if I were to, you know, outside of the defense, if I were to highlight one thing in the stretch, it's just that, you know, you've got to get more players into 12, 13, 14 points and 22 to 24 productive minutes 
at any given night. And if it's the same players every time, well, that's how star-laden teams that have big threes tend to do it. Um, but there are other paths to be successful, and, and that's usually how, is that you just have enough role players, all of them competent and capable on a nightly basis to be able to contribute, and you have a coaching staff that begins to learn this is when this player will be effective versus when this player won't be effective. And that's what I've seen from the Mavericks is just, you know, getting 17 or 18 points from Josh Green is that, you know, in, you know, added talent that we've been talking about that they just haven't had. They haven't had enough role players who pop on any given night. And finally seeing that, you know, does radically change kind of my outlook on this team. Um, to what degree it's consistent? Um, that, I guess I'm still trying to figure that out. How, where, where do you fall on that, Austin? You know, the things that I think are consistent is one Dorian. Dorian is just really good. He's and he's gotten better this year. That dude gets better every single year. That dude is like he's just solid all the time. You you never have to worry about him. He's never hurt. He doesn't miss games. You never you know like the the worst thing he can do is just go like two for eight from three in a game. But he he never it never like affects the way he plays the rest of the game. And he's gotten a lot better this year off, off the bounce. He throws great lobs. He's more dynamic off the dribble and getting to the rim. Um, so he's just he's just a mainstay. He's he's like almost like I would almost put him in a cut above role player in that he's like just a super solid starter. Um, even Maxi has, has looked a lot better. I think he's just a lot healthier this year. He just looks like he can actually move, like he's probably not spending five hours at the ice tub after every single game. And so I, I think that's really helped a lot. And, th- and those two guys are just really solid on their own. And then once Reggie came back from the health and safety protocols, he magically found out how to shoot again. His his slump was kind of inexplicable in that that dude has been shooting well for his entire basketball life and then just shot. I really don't. I honestly, I took the new ball as a, like the explanation for his bad shooting. So I was like, that's the only variable that's in here. That dude has been shooting amazing for 10 years and then just came here and just shot the worst in his career for two months. So I think those three guys, I think are going to be pretty consistent. Josh Green is just a huge plus. It's a huge plus. He's, we, he really wasn't even back in the rotation even like in, in November. And I think he's really worked his way into the rotation and he does things that no one else in the team does. He maybe the third best passer on the team. He's a great cutter. He's, he has really good basketball awareness. He's always locked in on the offensive end. He knows when to cut. He knows when to space. Um, and he's great off the he's off the ball on offense and on defense. He's great at digging and getting steals. And then he allows him to play fast. I think sometimes Luca wants to walk the ball up a little bit and doesn't want to run because also there's not a lot of people running with him. And I think he kind of forces them to get out and transition a lot more often. And I think the things that he's been doing lately are pretty sustainable because for the most part, it's not like he's been hitting five threes every single game and just like getting hot. It's just, he, he cuts, he plays super hard. That dude runs and is playing hard all the time. And now I think he's comfortable playing the NBA game. He's kind of learning the nuance in the NBA game. And I think that's going to be really valuable going down the stretch. Honestly, I think the biggest question mark is, is Hardaway. I think he's struggled to really find his footing. I think his, his role has honestly dramatically changed. If you can think of anyone's role has changed from where we were in the playoffs last year, where we were calling him the second best player on the team. It's now where we're like, well, he might be almost expendable at this point because maybe he's a little bit redundant with his shooting. Um, I think, 
finding his role and finding his footing, I think that's where finding the consistency is really going to be it's going to be difficult because even when he was playing his best, he is kind of a streaky player. Consistency is not really the the mainstay of his game. So I think that's really where kid has to find out what's the best role for him um, off the bench. I think from a rust from a roster perspective, he's very tradable. Mark Stein reported yeah. today that there's no interest in him, more or less. Which so <laughs> there's a there's a there's a quick aside. There's a there's almost that tier of like ultra role player or like elite role player which is doe maxi reggie and jalen's like somewhere like half a win share above that hovering yeah. and then we have like that traditional group that if you just want to like i don't know sounds bad whenever you say you want to junk up a game but it's almost like you want to make this game edgy and you want to outwork somebody for five minutes at a time and just drive people insane Put Josh Green out there and Moses Brown and Marquise Chris and see if that other team does not lose their shit within five minutes of those dudes just spraying around, playing as hard as they can. And that's kind of been the difference in the past of different uh, Mavs roster builds is those guys that were eight, nine, ten on the roster were like veterans, right? Longer in the tooth kind of guys that just played within themselves and just like let's go in here and like settle in and kind of like let the second unit run the way it's supposed to like, man, whatever's going on in a game, you throw Josh green or Moses Brown out there and the game just goes like on this different rail, like he gets bumped off and it's a different <laughs> complexion to the game that's happening. But I think what we're learning like really slowly and I don't want to like oversimplify the success of the last six games or whatever lies ahead. Um, but I think, Took, I took a lot of um, – I can't remember who told me this, but it was someone that was with the Clippers last year. When we played against the Clippers, it was it – was it was last year and the year before, and now they have a, you know, a good book on us, and our roster hasn't changed that much. Their thinking was basically leave Maxi and Doe open in the corners or on the wings, or Matt, for Maxi's case, sometimes up top. And those guys aren't going to beat you in a seven-game series. They can't shoot a high enough number from three to beat you in a seven-game series. And you know what? They were right. The Clippers were right in the last two series, right? They outmathed us, and they said that these dudes aren't going to have seven straight games where they go four of seven from three. It's just not going to happen. And so what's happened over the last six games is you've realized, okay, if Doe hits 45%, and Reggie hits 47%, and Maxi shoots 40%, we are extremely difficult to beat, no matter what else is going on. Yeah, the defense, take that. Let's pocket that. Let's keep that going. But offensively, if those three guys are shooting north of 40% on you know 5, 5.3, and 5.7 uh, threes a game, in Maxi's case, I guess 6.6, um, we are extremely hard to beat and outmath if they're going to shoot that number. So that's the question moving forward. Can these guys shoot that for a whole season? No, that's not going to happen, right? Those are not going to shoot 45% or 44% from three the entire season. How do we get good enough looks consistently to get him close to that? How do we do the same thing for Maxi? How do we do the same thing for Reggie? And through the first 30 games, it looked like the ball was kind of flying around. Basically, until Luca came back, it looked like 
the ball would fly around and they would make some really cool passes like to opposite wings and to corners and things like that. And there was like no intention. Like they didn't know like what the next thing was supposed to be after that. And they'd pump fake and like step into a long two and no one on our team has taken a long two in like three years. And so you like, you're just like, okay, take that if you want to. Um, but the ball would just fly around without intention. It wasn't dangerous. They were not to quote, uh, to quote YG. They were not staying dangerous. They were just, it was just flying. The ball was just zipping. And I'm like, who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. Like you can pass it in a whole circle and like run 24 seconds down if you want to. No one's scared of you right now. That, and that's the first YG reference on this podcast. But yeah. Definitely not the last. 400. Um, yeah. So uh, that's, that's the thing that looks different to me. And I guess since Luca came back, it was, you know, I think he's in a little bit better conditioning shape, number one, but also I've seen him pass up a lot of uh, bad habit, falling away kind of lazy threes for the correct pass of late, knowing that the gravity he brings just having some sense of if I just pump fake and step to the right, like five guys are like diving at me right now and I can get such an easy shot on the other side, but yeah, sorry to get off track with the role player stuff, but though, if we shoot, (laughs) if we shoot this way and I'm just talking about these three guys, the rest can kind of, volatility wherever it goes kp can shoot whatever tim can shoot whatever luca will eventually have a good shooting month some point in here um but if those three guys knock down their shots we're extremely difficult to beat now this is a this is a podcast that supports rambling uh i I would say i I would not even push back I, i i would be the voice of Let's see it happen. Uh, certainly, Maxi was someone who shot very well last season. Uh, couldn't quite duplicate it in the playoffs. Uh, you know, it, it a lot of the playoff concerns and just the way that the team is going to be played, very specifically in the playoffs, which is different than they've been played. Uh, those are still open into questions, and it's going to take more time to to even look at you know what's happening in the regular season and be like, oh, this is different than past regular seasons, and more likely to succeed in the postseason. I don't even think we're at that point yet. Um, although, damn, it's crazy that they haven't won six straight games since uh, since 2016. April that, 8, 2016, uh, man. Dude, that 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 was that surprised even me. Yeah. I'm on I'm on the same page with you. I'm you know I do this for a living, so I watch every single game. And this is the fourth season I've done this where I can. Bobby and I will literally go through the calendar, and I'm like. Here's the month that Tim won't shoot well. Here's the month that Maxi will shoot well. And just like, let's just mm-hmm. do it for like two straight months, guys. And then let's build off that. You know what I mean? Like, that's the right. difference between like, I don't know, whatever we're labeling them as is like ultra elite players. And well, Doe's like somewhere above that now. Like, he's like just certified NBA starter that, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, just like that step above where it's, um, you're not just a guy in the league. Like you're, you're a dude Um, do that consistently for like two or three months straight and put together a season where you shot X number of threes and you made 39 plus percent. Right. Hey man. I mean, there's a reason I predicted they're going to win 51 wins, uh, 51 games this year. They're going to win 51 games. Uh, That was the prediction. I botched that. Um, And, and there was optimism. Like I think, I I was optimistic for damn sure. I, I think most people on this podcast that were that were on various at times was you know were optimistic about this team headed into the season. You know, it's been 
we've had a lot of negative podcast and, and negative theme podcast over this season and for good reason because the start of the season the first 25 games was atrocious to watch it was you know it, it, it looked bad it, you know even when they're winning it looked bad uh it, it's good to see this team is playing much more in line with how I expected them to play, truly expected them, based off all of the evidence that we've had over the past couple seasons and what a Luka Doncic-led team and, and what the floor for a Luka Doncic-led team can be. On that note... He, he uh, hasn't been that good yet. Yeah, yeah that's also that's, true. Like, that's true. Can we be honest? Like, yeah. This has been, He's been fine. Yeah, this has almost looked like... He can be better. Second half rookie season or something. You know yeah, what I mean? I agree like, with that. It just hasn't... He just hasn't... And he'd probably say this. He's like, he just hasn't played quite up there yet. So you assume that's going to happen. Like that great of a player is not going to, you know, shoot 39% <laughs> over a season. And his numbers during the win streak are horrible. They're, they're like, bad. they're really bad. Well, he's played five games <laughs> since the 12th. Yeah. Like I, I said, like since the 12th uh, is the stretch they've been playing well. He's played five games in that span. Yeah, he shoot, he's shooting like twenty five percent from three and like thirty eight percent from the field, and they're winning. Yeah, that's the crazy thing is he's gonna have, I don't know, a half of a season, a thirty game stretch maybe, where it's like, yeah, that guy's probably the best player in the league. Hopefully that happens again. Like I felt that way, bubble second half of, um, that season, and then last year there were definitely moments where I was like, it doesn't matter what y'all got tonight, we got that one. So that's we needed, I mean, hasn't played well, honestly. You know, after six wins, we we needed we needed to talk deep about this team. I I, I think we did that. There's an hour more we could probably cover and, and and discuss, but there's time for that next week. Uh, before it gets too far away, I, I did want to touch on on Dirk Nowitzki's jersey retirement. I I, I wrote about it at the Athletic last week. Uh, you can read my story there. You know, I have a story um, that published the day of uh, with a bunch of stories and anecdotes and just. Things that are are both funny and amusing to go through, but also represent, you know, various aspects of Dirk's personality and, and why we love that dude. Uh, did you have, you know, give me give me your single takeaway. You know, Mike, you were a little bit involved behind the scenes. I know that this was mostly an outside operation from uh, Laura Beth Seeger, but, you know, you had a little bit of involvement. What's one takeaway? What's one major takeaway or moment that that's going to stick out to you from that night? Um, you know, when you reflect back on it in a month or a year or 10 years? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as emotional as uh, his final home game. Uh, for me, I felt like I, that was the emotional piggy make. Someone took a hammer to it that night. And I was just like, man, I'll never forget this. Like, as long as I live, not that the ceremony wasn't as spectacular or whatever. It just, you know, we're not, we weren't going to see him play basketball anymore after that. And that was heartbreaking to me, like personally, like he means more to me than probably any sports figure probably should mean to a man. And I'm willing to admit that, like I'm that dork. But from that night, I mean, the the people that were in attendance um, was really cool. And then the thing that I'll remember probably 10 years from now from that night is, you know, we went down the the lineup of people he wanted to think right he's thanking cubes he's thinking you know all his coaches all his teammates and making jokes and he was genuinely nervous um i don't know if anybody could feel that because it is such weird stilted speech inside of an arena where you got to wait for applause and things like that um 
but him being nervous and just like not hitting punchlines is so rare to me where he like, I'm just going to stop telling the jokes. I'm just going to do the thing. And he just like kind of hit the, you know, the, the jump to sentimental stuff. But the, the number one moment from that, that I'll take away is the final thing that he chose to say in his address to you know, the world. Here's you guys honoring me. Thanks. My time to talk was to the fans was to thank the fans was here's all these pillars in my life that made me who I am. Um, the final and most important pillar is you like I did this for you. And, you know, you always assumed that, but you don't, unless you're, you know, work for the team or, you know, get some lucky gig or something. You don't know that you don't get, you don't have a personal relationship with the guy. You don't have conversations with him. Right. Um, So you're still like a step removed even after 21 years. So you don't, you don't know that as fact. You don't know if he's, you know, so many guys now I'm just like, I watch him play and I'm like, I don't know if that guy likes playing basketball or if he's just like a top 100 athlete on earth and just, this is his path to a hundred million dollars, you know, but that guy would live and die for success on a basketball court and to raise up wherever he is and whoever is around him in that venture. And and I think it was incredibly intentional, like the order he went in. Like he could have put the fans first. 100%. Like, like there's a reason the coaches came so early on. Like he, mm-hmm. he you know, he does like Rick Carlisle a lot, but yeah. you know, like he, he he knew he had to mention Avery, and he kind of got got that yeah. out of the way. And you know, there's another moment that I, the funniest, maybe unintentional, but the funniest moment was him saying, uh, talking about all his teammates, 200 of them, almost too many. Long pause <laughs> to yeah. name. Yeah, and maybe I'm maybe I'm reading into that. Maybe maybe, but I, I just I felt an intentionality. He said he worked on it for weeks. Mm-hmm. It was intentional. The order he went in, it was intentional. One hundred percent. It was it was the Casey Kasem t- countdown ten to one. Like it was not. I'm starting at one. Right. Um, it was it was. I'm going from ten tenth most important to like first in his mind. And us, me, you, Austin, whoever else is listening to this that thinks that. I didn't have any effect necessarily. I was just a fan and I don't influence these people. You Well, the, the, the secret voice in the back of your head that said like, maybe you do, maybe these guys play a little harder whenever like they know you support them. Like that was true. <laughs> that was true. Like, like Batman's reading your fan letters, right? Like that's the thing. He, he genuinely cares about all that. And then just watching him answer <laughs> an hour worth of questions and then 20 minutes worth of questions day after that do a speech which he was super nervous for and then watching him take i had man what was that like 20 30 minutes to walk out of the building because he was saying bye to so many people and just like talking to so many people like he would he didn't want to be anywhere else and not to you know be a critic of the younger guys now but Man, they just like, I don't know. They're just not about that. Like, they're just in and out. They're just like, this is a job showing up for my job by going home from the job. Like, that dude just 
he would have hung out at the arena all night if that line just would have kept going around <laughs> the arena. Like if you keep doing like a Whataburger high five line on his exit out and people just keep like high fiving him and asking him about things and talking to him, he just would have gone in circles for like three hours. Like he was just soaking it up and he loved it. And that's, I don't know. He's, he's one of one, man. There's, there's, there's not, there's not another one like him, like in any sport, I don't think, but Yeah. Yeah, he's he's definitely one on one, and his situation is also one of one. He's basically just like the child of the Mavericks. Like he came here as like an eighteen year old in the late nineties, didn't know anything about the city of Dallas. There it was a very different city back then. People like who worked in the sales department taught him how to like cash a check. Like he wasn't. He didn't know how to be an adult when he was here. And so he basically kind of just grew up here. And I think that's why he has such a familial level, like relationship with the franchise, because he just, they taught him how to do everything. And he was kind of just kind of like a wide eyed puppy when he got here. And now he's just a full grown legend. And I think that's kind of the feeling that I had when I watched the ceremony is that I'm not a parent, but it felt like watching your, your kid get married and like, oh, you're, that's, that person, like I've known them and they've been part of us this entire time. And now they've done all these great things and now they're moving on to go to the next part of their life. And they love this part, but they're, they're, they're kind of just graduating on the next aspect of, of life. And he's just, he's just such a, a, just a special figure. Like he made every single person in that arena feel like they were the only person in the arena. And I think everyone just felt super special. And it's one of those things that's, it's honestly, it's not replicable. No one can ever do it again. You can't crowdsource it. You can't go do a whole bunch of just can't hire a marketing firm to figure out how to like get the next Dirk Nowitzki. It's just, it's it's once in a lifetime. And I think for me, like it also feels super personal. Like uh, his wife is also uh, is is half Kenyan, and I'm Kenyan, and so Dirk married just like basically directly into my culture, and she happens to be like from the tribe that I'm from. And so when I was in college, I, <laughs> I was at my aunt's place and she was like, oh yeah, I know, I know, I know, the Je- I know Jessica, I know Dirk's wife. And I was, she was like, they came over here for like a rehearsal dinner. And I was like, oh, okay. And <laughs> apparently Jessica is like a huge hustler at the local market, which is like a place filled with 20 of the world's best salesmen were all like your aunties and Dirk. Uh, like a tall white seven footer is just like walking through this huge open market and just having the time of his life. And Jessica's just like buying things and taking people just like, <laughs> just getting the greatest deals of all time. And Dirk just loved it. So it's just like, he just, he feels like family in a sense, personally to me, he feels like family. Um, and it's, it's great to have something like that. It's great to just like, there's very few things in life that are just like wholesome advice like that. Like there are very few things you get to grow up and then you get to live out and it actually was as good as you thought it was as a kid growing up. He has honestly a story, a life story that would get thrown back if you wrote it as a screenplay because it would be too cliche. And it's just really nice to see something like that play out, especially just in the, all the things we have to deal with in the pandemic and all these other things. It's just nice to have a one night where nothing matters, but, but 41. So it was, it was a great evening. I thought it, it was really touching. I also kind of agree with Mike. I think I was more emotional at his last game. Cause I was like, wow, it's, that's, it's over. This is more just like, wow, I got an appreciation for someone that gave a lot to us. And I feel like also we gave a lot to him and it feels 
it feels like a very reciprocal relationship. And I think that's what really makes it meaningful. Y'all think I can get a trip to Nairobi expensed where I'm just going to go shopping at the bazaar with, uh, with Dirk. I'm, tr- I'm trying. <laughs> we, I mean, New York times, let, let's talk, let's talk. Why wouldn't, you know, I'll, I'll post up at their, uh, their, their office out there or something. So I mean, that'd be, if, uh, that'd be fun. That's the New York times is for. I, I agree. I think that what that night represented to me was, a reminder and a recall of all these emotions that I have towards Dirk. Not one that necessarily planted new ones. I I don't think anything about that night made me feel something I hadn't before. But boy, being on press row watching that transported me back to his last home game and being on press row for that game and just remembering, you know, how I was standing there transfixed. And he's walking off the court and the lights are dim and blue hues everywhere. And they've got the spotlight on him. And, you know, you look up at the, the Jumbotron and they've got the, you know, the Mavericks. You guys actually, Mike, have the, the best camera just following right behind him. And I, I don't even know if I looked up, though, because I, I remember just a feeling of transfiction that, you know, I, I was, you know, just stuck in that moment. And I I wouldn't be able to move until it it at least reached some level of processing for me, even in that moment. And it, and it took a few minutes, even after we walked off. Uh, and, and I just distinctly remembered that. And those memories and those emotions that came with that night, and then everything, of course, that came before that, is is really just what came back in a in a, in a really in a really specific and special way, I think, for Miss Jersey retirement. So. Nothing about that night I will remember specifically, you know. I, I do think it's really cool the speech he gave and how he gave it, you know, how he did have comedic timing in, in a few moments and, you know, didn't have a teleprompter or anything. And it's funny to think about how an 18-year-old, 19-year-old Dirk would have been able to handle that because he wouldn't. He could not have done a speech like that. And that shows, you know, how this guy has always changed but also never changed. Um, you know, I won't belabor at that point. I wrote about it on The Athletic. But it was it was really cool to be reminded of everything that he has meant and and really specifically that final home game, which is when I really, you know, a lot of those emotions and feelings about the entirety of his career, I think, you know, became crystallized and fossilized in a in a really unique and special way. So that was my main takeaway. Uh, sounds like it, it, it tracks with what you guys have for the most part. Um, yeah, I think good dude. When oh yeah, just kind of, kind of all right guy, pretty okay guy. Uh, whenever I make things about him, and every once in a while I get, you know, the the uh, responsibility or you know privilege to make something about Dirk Nowitzki, even though I only shared one year with him uh, with the franchise, I find it incredibly important to include rookie year pre-draft stuff um early failures just the stuff where we didn't know him as this where he was not Dirk Nowitzki he was that floppy-headed gumby-looking kid that is going to get Don Nelson fired you know like i find it incredibly important 
to include as much of that time as possible into his story because now it's like every kid that's drafted in the top 10 that's a European player is supposed to work out. Back then, I cannot explain how much of out on a plank Don Nelson was and Donnie Nelson was. And just the idea of like, this probably won't work out. <laughs> just this probably is not going to go great. Um, this is not going to end up in our favor. And just the question of like, is he good enough was like constant. It was, man, it was seven years of, are we good enough? Is he good enough? Is he a good enough player to get a team to the finals? Is he a good enough team to get past the Spurs, the Kings, the Lakers, the Trailblazers, and all these teams? And, in, you know, and for me, and in turn, am I good enough to do whatever I want to do, to follow my dreams? And so, you know, it's, it's weird to experience a career that, that way and that closely that you, you know, I didn't know the guy at that age. But my self-worth was somehow oddly and like grimly tied to this human being. Like if he wasn't good enough, then Dallas wasn't good enough and I wasn't good enough. And like no one can ever break through anywhere on any level, whether it's, you know, working, doing video stuff, doing uh, film stuff or art or, you know, music or anything like nothing. No, no accidents are ever going to happen again. Like that's how it felt if he if he didn't make it like it was just going to be preordained that like the next thing was going to get picked and it was going to be the next thing before you even had like a say in it. And just, he was the first person that ever thought like made me feel like I was good enough and Dallas is good enough. And for not, for somebody you don't know to have that effect on your life is, is, is absolutely insane. Like it's probably like some kind of psychological disorder, um, to put that much worth into a complete stranger. But I mean, you know, I spent as much time with him in those teams from age, I guess, what, 13 to whatever, two, three years ago. I spent as much time with him as I did, you know, relatives. <laughs> so it's it's not that insane uh, to think about. But that guy, I mean, it it wasn't supposed to work out. He was not supposed to be sixth all-time scoring in NBA history and play 21 seasons and just be good enough to carry a franchise to a finals and then a world championship. It's comforting that the universe can't make sense. I think that's something I think about when I try to you know, think about how movie-like Dirk's story feels like. You know, like the like like everybody says, like that it's a you know they send the script back if you if you send it exactly as is, and you know even the symbolism. I always go back to the symbolism of his game two layup, and first off, it's a layup for a guy who never could win a title because he's a soft jump shooter, and you know it's it's on his left hand, the hurt left hand that he's playing through and isn't even affected by. So you know, get rid of that soft label another time. And 
you know, then it's, then it's uh, the, the comeback. And so, you know, just the mental fortitude and the team it's against and, you know, just everything, everything adding up in that moment to, to that layup. I, I think that, you know, it, when it comes to on court, it's, it's probably not his, you know, the, the very highest, you know, I think that that layup against San Antonio um, and especially maybe if I'd lived through it, I would feel that was an even, even a greater marker of, you know, everything that he was shedding and rewriting as a, as a player in this league. But I think I just, I just go back to that layup. I, I go back to that game two layup and just in every single way, it, it shattered all of these unfair and un- incorrect perceptions and beliefs about him and, you know, led them to winning that series. And, you know, I think, I think that's quite cool. Yeah. And just proof that you can like, discipline and work your way through anything like it doesn't matter what it is like if you just if you just want it enough and you want to be a psycho about it like you can do it like it doesn't matter what it whatever your like interest is like just pursued interest right uh you you can do it maybe there is some like physical limitation to you maybe you're born like five seven right okay you can't be uh an nba player necessarily but maybe you could yeah. There's there's no there's no wall between you and it just this that opening that door of your mind to say like okay maybe I can do this but I just have like some discipline about me and like want to work my ass off every single day. I yeah, because be Dirk isn't a basketball story. Dirk isn't a basketball no, no. story. He's not. Yeah. He's not a. You know, he is an inspiration, but he's he's not supposed. His story is not supposed to or need. It doesn't need to be an inspiration just to a eleven year old basketball player. Mm-hmm. It can be an inspiration to any 11-year-old trying to do anything that they're capable of with the right amount of, you know, work and time and belief and in, in all of these things that Dirk had. I think... Yeah. I mean, it's he, Shakespearean. Yeah. Close he, us out, Austin. He just made you feel like there was a little bit of magic. And I think also Holger went into that a lot. You know, there would be like, he would shoot 40% for like three weeks. And then people were like, oh yeah, Holger's coming into town. And everyone knows, like, oh, yeah. he's coming into town. He's just they're just gonna work together for a few days, and then Dirk would shoot like six percent for two weeks, and that happened all the time. That is honestly one of the most insane things. Like, it's one of those things that like happen all the time. We took for granted that just doesn't happen. Just some guy flew in from Germany. Some old physicist came in from Germany every like other month, and would just work with a NBA All NBA player for three days, and would fix a jumper for like three weeks. And it was just something we all just like thought that was just normal. And I think. He, he made you want to believe. And I think that's kind of like the whole thing about sports is that he gave you a reason to believe all the time. That's a, that's a closer. That's an ender right there. Uh, this, this is, we are now on a uh, one podcast winning streak. Uh, so I will be sure that when we come back next week that uh, it's an off episode, because again, that's not what we do. That's not what, <laughs> that's not what we believe in. Uh, but, but Mike, even if you're only filling in for another Mike uh, machine sports, thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you for, all the cool shit you've done at the Mavericks that I've written about. Because, uh, you know, I like cool shit. Uh, Austin, thank you. Appreciate it as always. And uh, this has been another episode. We'll, we'll be back next week. Thanks, everyone. Plays Fortnite just like me. I am 34. Don't fight the future, honey. Don't fight the future. The future is Luke, a big dick Donchich from the home of Melania Trump. How many kids you hit? Don't fight.
fight the future It tears me apart Don't fight the future Please be nice to Luca Future four-time MVP Oh my God! Oh! Shut it down! Oh Let's go home! <laughs> it's a wrap, Doug! Man, that is a wrap. <laughs> Woo!